Hey, welcome to another episode of The Scrum, WGBH News' politics podcast. I'm Adam Riley, and I'm here with my esteemed colleague, Peter Kadzis. Peter, greetings. Greetings, one and all. In a few minutes, you're going to hear a conversation that Peter and I had with Peter Tedeschi, who's running for Congress as a Republican in the 9th Congressional District, where he's hoping to unseat Democratic incumbent Bill Keating. There are other Republicans making congressional bids here in Massachusetts, but Tedeschi may have the best chance at victory. Among other things, he's been dubbed a young guns contender, their phrase, not mine, by the National Republican Congressional Committee, which is a sign the GOP establishment thinks he has a legitimate shot at winning. Peter Kadzis and I wanted to get a sense of how a viable Republican is campaigning at a moment when the National Republican brand, featuring President Trump, is giving a lot of Massachusetts residents some serious pause. You'll get answers from Peter Tedeschi in a moment, but first, Peter Kadzis, I want to get your take on a shift, a big shift, in the way Democratic Senator Elizabeth Warren is talking about her interest in the presidency. Take a listen to what Warren had to say a few days ago at a town hall in Holyoke. So here's what I promise. After November 6th, I will take a hard look at running for president. Now, Peter, as you know, this is new. It's a much more candid admission than we've ever received from Warren that she is, in fact, interested in a presidential bid. My question is, why is she getting candid now, a month before Massachusetts voters are going to be deciding between her and her Republican challenger, Jeff Deal? I think there are two reasons. One is she just decided to tell the truth, to come clean. Her admitting this is not as big a deal as some might think. It is a deal. There's no doubt about it. She's hinted about this. So it is a development. The other reason, I think, is a concrete political one, that at the moment, women are a range between being ticked off to really angry at... uh, the politics in this country, or at least Democratic women, are in the Democratic-leaning independents yeah. are really ticked off. And in her re-election bid, this could get women to who haven't voted for her to uh, think more seriously. And, uh, you know, I tried this idea out yesterday on some people, and they thought I was crazy. Well, lo and behold, I'm listening to Boston Public Radio, and a woman named Natalie calls in. And, uh, well, let's just listen to what she has to say. The Democrats, I have always been an independent. I I don't think I could ever vote for a Republican ever again. And the Democrats have to get out, regardless of the outcome of this, and mobilize for the midterms in the next five weeks in the biggest way possible to get their voices heard and really take back what's happening. Um, I actually have actually never supported Elizabeth Warren before, but there is no question in my mind that I would absolutely support Elizabeth Warren being the president of the United States. We need a female. We need somebody who is actually going to make sense of this. I have sons. I have daughters. I have four children. And... They all need to know what is right, what is decent, instead of a culture that is about power and bullying and silencing anybody who gets in their way. Adam, after listening to Natalie, all I have to say is, y'all witness. All right, let's turn now to our conversation with Peter Tedeschi, the Republican running for Congress in the 9th Congressional District, which includes, among other places, Fall River, 
New Bedford, and the Cape. I started out by asking Tedeschi to describe his background. Let me ask you at the outset, ordinarily, and I know that you've you know done on the record and other shows like this, and usually those of us who are introducing the person, asking them questions, we would describe your background, your bio, what's important for people to know, and then we'd start talking with you. Um, just for the hell of it, can you just start off before we get going by telling listeners about your biography and what parts of your biography you think are important when it comes to your congressional candidacy. Sure. Well, I think a lot of it's important. Um, let's start with the fact I'm a lifelong resident of the South Shore, um, which is uh, obviously part of the district that uh, I'm, I'm hoping to serve. Um, what's also important is the fact that my family business, which a lot of people know, Tedeschi Food Shops, it was Angelo Supermarkets, uh, goes back and really started with my grandparents and my grandfather at the turn of last century. They came here as Italian immigrants, um, settled in Rockland, Massachusetts, and out of necessity, he actually had worked worked in a uh, shoe factory, became ill, was no longer able to work in the shoe factory, and uh, uh, actually came into Boston, took his truck into Boston where he'd buy produce, meat, things, bring them back to the South Shore, sold them, went so well, started selling them out of his house. That went so well, he opened up a little shop in Rockland. Uh, that went so well, we got into the supermarket business, and that's how we got to where, where we became. So we have a long, long track record, long history, and it's a place that I not only call home, but it's a place that I care deeply about, and a place that has allowed my family multi-generationally, um, to realize sort of the American dream. It's an opportunity for me to give back. For me, personally, I uh, grew up in Norwell, Massachusetts on the South Shore, currently live in Marshfield, just about three miles away from where I grew up. And uh, professionally, uh, you know, I'd never worked for the family business until 2008, uh, summer things, of course, when I was a kid. But So uh, out of college, started a computer business, did very well until the computer industry sort of collapsed, if you will, the retail market in particular, and uh, was struggling mightily. Um, decided it was time I had to get out of it, got out of it, and uh, went to work in Boston in financial services with Wellington Management, then Putnam Investments, um, and would actually repair computers at night to pay off debts we'd accumulated because of the, the company, and uh, had a great career. In 2008, I was a senior vice president of Putnam Investments, had uh, domestic and international responsibility, and um, my family called me up and asked me if I'd consider leaving Putnam to come run the family business. And, uh, you know, it, it was not as easy as a uh, decision as you may think. A lot of thought went into the process. My wife and I thought about it a lot. I knew it would be something that might make my father proud, thought I could help the company. And it was one of those moments where I thought, you know, if I don't do this, I think I might regret it the rest of my life. So sort of like one of the reasons I'm running. I know I'd regret it if I didn't do this. So decided to do it and did it. In 2008, I became the president and CEO of Tedeschi Food Shops and thoroughly loved it. We had about 200 stores, great family business. You know, working for my family, uh, with my family, was very interesting, uh, very rewarding. Before we get to political stuff and before you wrap up the bio, yeah. I wanted to ask you, why was it a tough call? when you were asked to come back to the family business? Couple, what were you ambivalent about? Sure, a couple of reasons. I had a great career in financial services at Putnam Investments. I was actually uh, senior vice president of operations. So I ran a lot of the technology domestically and internationally. I had people around the world. And so, uh, you know, it, it, there was a lot of questions. First couple of things were, um, one, if I do this, I had other family members, some of them older than me, that were still at the company. How did they feel about this? Uh, that worked out great, um, number one. Number two, my other concern was I'm about to basically jettison my career. And if I do this, what is it you want me to do with the company? I mean, you know, uh, my biggest fear was that we would sell the company, which unfortunately we ended up doing just that. And they said, take it as far as you think you can take it, which was really the right answer. Things devolved later, and we unfortunately ended up selling the company. 
but it was difficult. And, you know, look, I'd always been my own man, my own person. And now I was going to, uh, you know, there's all these questions. You see things with Demoulis's and things like that. My family's very different. Uh, we had, we were very, very close-knit family. We don't always agree, uh, but we always, in a civil way, go out, discuss our differences. We come out on the same page. I'm blessed to be a part of the family I am. And that's, you know, I always appreciated my family. I really appreciated them when I came to work at Tedeschi's. I really did. They were great. So supportive and allowed us to do great things. In 2012, we became the convenience store chain of the year nationally. Peter, now that your namesake has given us a biographical <laughs> recap, Sorry, should yeah. we get to the explicitly no, 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 political? Yeah, let's, let's get political here. Very general question. In the age of Trump, what does it mean to be a Massachusetts Republican? You know, so when I look at, uh, I, I get asked similar questions, and, and they say, what sort of a Republican are you? And to me, a role model, someone that I look up to and respect is Charlie Baker. And so I would sort of put myself in the in the ilk of a Charlie Baker for a lot of reasons. Mentioned earlier, one of the things Charlie likes to say, the governor says a lot, is be tough on the issues, soft on the people. And you could see that in the, in the way he... Uh, the way he approaches things. So um, I've gotten to know the governor very well through this process. Uh, I've always respected him, respect him even more now after this. So if, if you look at how Charlie Baker governs, I consider him to be sort of what you would consider to be a Massachusetts Republican. How does that transfer to Washington, though? Baker is an unusual figure nationally, but he, he's sort of an ex- he is an exception, not the rule. How does a Massachusetts Republican translate in Washington or transfer to Washington? So unfortunately, I think today that um, someone like that is the regrettable fact, probably an anomaly in D.C. today. And I want to change that. And I say that because someone like Governor Baker, um, what he's willing to do is to reach across party lines, not to just do the bidding of his party or a special interest group, but to do the work of the people. And we have gotten so far away from that in D.C. Um, but the fact is, when you take a look at things, Peter, you have a couple of options. Put your hands up, complain about it, and just pray things get better or do something about it. I'm running because I've decided it's time I need to try to do something about it. Let me ask you a little bit more about the Baker comparison that you made sure. involving yourself. As you know, Governor Baker chose not to vote in the last presidential election, mm-hmm. said he didn't want to vote for President Trump, now President Trump. Mm-hmm or Hillary Clinton. Did you cast a vote in I the did. last presidential election? And who'd you vote for? I did vote for the president. But like many, you know, it, it was, I was not enamored with my choices, my options, um, being very candid. And there have been times where I've been very disappointed with sort of the tone and temperament that the, that the president uses um, when he speaks about different things. So, but yeah, no, I did. You know, even though Republicans have won the popular vote for the presidency, only once in recent elections. Mm-hmm. Nevertheless, they've triumphed, and that's because research shows that Republican voters vote more frequently and regularly than Democrats do, and they're extremely loyal to the party. I mean, if if someone voted for Mitt Romney for president, the odds are by massive probability that they voted for Donald Trump. Why do you think that is? Why is there such discipline in conviction within the Republican Party? Obviously, Peter, you've got some facts to back that up. I, I, I almost take the other view, and I view the Democrats as, as being sort of more loyal to their party. One of the things I, I often say as is, is, is a Republican is, in some ways, I feel like we're a party that likes to eat its own. 
And and what I find is that you'll find a lot of Republicans out there that will not vote for, they might not vote at all because they disagree with the Republican candidate on an issue. Pick it, but it's an issue that's, that's sort of important to them, and they'll, we call sort of blank the ballot, okay? I've always looked at Democrats as sort of coalescing around their candidate, good, bad, or indifferent, and, and supporting them. So I think we, we can't get into all the details here, but Peter is riffing off a piece. And is it a new? It's a summary of the latest statistical okay. info. And it's eye-opening because what it shows is that Republicans, this is a national generalization. Mm-hmm. Republicans tend to vote almost all the time, mm-hmm. and Democrats don't. Mm. Interesting. Let me tell you something. I'll speak more specifically to the ninth. Um, obviously, my, my district, my home. There's a lot of great things about the area we live in. Um, from a political perspective, one of the, the fascinating things is nearly 64% of the voters in my district are registered as unenrolled or independent. And so, what we find is that we have a very um, independent, open-minded group of people representing the area who are much more likely to vote for the candidate than the party. So it's fascinating. I know that dynamic changes you go nationally, but it's sort of one of the very interesting things about the uh, the ninth. You guys have also been more friendly to Republican candidates over the past few election cycles, right? I mean, I have some numbers here. Uh, It's true. Charlie Baker beat Martha Coakley by a pretty wide margin, 11 points. And what was, as a lot of people forget, myself included, a very close race. Gabriel Gomez. 1.65% statewide. uh, Governor Baker won by over 11 in uh, Gabe Gomez. There's about a 10-point spread between how he did statewide, how he did in the district. Yeah. What do you chalk that? Same thing. What do you chalk that up to, given that there is this high preponderance of independent voters or Mm. unenrolled voters? Mm -hmm. Why do you think the ninth has tended to be more... Republican-friendly than other parts of the state? I don't know if it's... I think they, they tend to be more conservative um, than than the other parts of the state. Um, I always tell people it is probably the, it is the most conservative um, district in Massachusetts. I know that's a relative term, um, but uh, it is... I, I really can't put my finger on it and tell you why. Um, all I can do is point to some of the, the, the stats that we know relative to the relatively high proportion of unenrolled voters that really vote candidate rather than party. And that's a really good thing, not only in, in, in this district, but I, th- I think we'd all be better served uh, uh, across the country if we could vote that way and get to know the candidate. So if I'm looking for, and, and I don't even know what it would be, I don't know how you explain how a particular region becomes heavily liberal or conservative, yeah. although there's some obvious counterexamples, right? I know why I think Cambridge is sure. a very liberal enclave, for example. But So I can't chalk it up to... Uh, the preponderance of people making their living fishing, for example, in years past, or, or ethnic or racial makeup, anything like that? No, you, you really can't. One of the things I can tell you is this. There is a lot of business, small business, family businesses in the 9th Congressional District. One of the things I do realize and appreciate, and one of the things that makes me different than Congressman Keating, is the fact that I am, uh, I know I have a business background, I understand that nearly 90% of all new jobs created in my district are created at the hands of small businesses. Yet, you know, Congressman Keating does little to support small businesses. When I say businesses, I'm not just talking about small businesses, medium businesses. I'm talking about things like the fishing industry, for example. Let's take the fishing industry. Since I brought it up and you just brought it up, what should he be doing on behalf of the fishing industry that you don't feel he has? A couple of things. Look, you know, going back to when uh, President Obama implemented uh, and signed unilaterally uh, into law uh, the Monuments Act, basically putting nearly 5,000 square miles of fertile fishing area off limits to commercial fishermen without even having a public hearing about it. I would have fought tooth and nail to have had a 
at least make sure it, it saw the light of day. We had a chance to discuss and, and discuss and deliberate it uh, before voting on it. So that put a lot of a lot of the area off limits to commercial fishermen. More recently, Magnuson Stevens Act, which essentially dictates um, not only the species but the the amount, the weight that f- commercial fishermen are able to catch of a specific species. And Magson Stevens, the way it is set up is it sets it, and it's, it's intended to protect species, okay, which is a great thing. No one can argue about that. But the way they set it up is we set the limits now and it's good for 10 years. That's not how the real world acts and how the real world works. Um, things change over time. So the new reenactment basically would have, allo- would have allowed, um, would allow for more regular changes to basically correspond with the realities of what's going on with a particular species and to allow them to adjust not every just every 10 years, but every few years um, so that their catches reflect what's going on with whether it's flounder, fluke, um, or what have you. And, and in that case, Congressman Keating voted against reenactment, which to me um, flew in the face of supporting the, the fishing industry, which isn't just an industry. These are people who are working to put food on their tables, the people that make the nets, repair the boats. Um, there's a lot of people that, that rely on this industry. We have New Bedford, the number one fishing port in the country, right in our district. You should be doing everything you can. Obviously, you want to do what's right for the environment, too, but to support that industry as well. Um, and then you have um, uh, another congressman, um, Steve Lynch, in the 8th Congressional District, just north of where I am, um, who voted in favor of supporting Magnus and Stevens. So um, he should be doing a lot more uh, to support uh, our fishing industry, making sure the licenses that we're taking away because of Carlos Rafael, the codfather, um, make sure that those come back um, to our area. Peter Kadzis, I know you had some other issues-focused questions you wanted to ask, right? Peter, there seems to be, in addition to local economic issues like fishing, which is vitally important, there are three sort of transcendent issues mm-hmm. that the nation faces. Or the war in Afghanistan, health care, immigration. Don't worry, we're not going to ask you to give me one answer that covers all three right now. But what do you think the United States should do? What role should Congress be playing in the war in Afghanistan, which is the longest war in United States history? Well, it's like, Peter, it's like anything else. Um, Whether we're involved in a war or whether we're implementing um, legislation, I I think one of the things you need to have is... uh, um, for the American people, I think we deserve to know what constitutes success. <clears throat> so if we do this, you can expect to see blank, fill in the blank, as they, sort of the, the final outcome. Um, I'm not sure we, we, we've heard the answer to that question enough, and we have not measured success the way we need to along the way. So, But it's been almost 20 years. Yeah. I mean, and you, you'll be one of the men and women defining what that measure of success is. Yeah. That number still blows me away, by the way. When that you is, say it, I have to sort of do the math in my head. It's incredible. It is, it is crazy. I mean, look, I would coalesce with a lot of the folks uh, on both sides of the aisle um, to make sure that we understand how long we should be there and make sure that we're articulating to the American people what success is. One of the things I can tell you is um, we're not doing nearly enough for the folks that are defending us over there and that come back wounded. Now, I'm not just talking about the the physical amounts we can see. I'm talking about things like uh, mental issues, PTSD and things like that. Um, I think it's disgraceful that we're not doing enough to help the people that are defending our liberties each and every single day, whether it's in Afghanistan or elsewhere. Do you have any thoughts off the top of your head on 
how success might be defined in Afghanistan, what certain benchmarks or metrics might be that the U.S. should be hoping to achieve in order to put that war to an end? What I don't like is it's a moving target. And I don't like that. It's elimination of the Taliban. It's elimination of ISIS. Well, we've neutralized the Taliban. We've neutralized ISIS. Basically, we're, we're supposed to be there to keep us safe. And someone should be articulating every day why our involvement in the Middle East is keeping us safe. Obviously, it's in our best interest to make sure the Middle East doesn't go south real quick, um, whether it's uh, cutting off the oil flow from the Straits of Hormuz. Um, certainly, though, there are other countries they need to be picking up more of the burden to help over there. China, who's one of the biggest beneficiaries of the oil that flows through the Straits of Hormuz, is not doing nearly its share to keep that area safe, including support in Afghanistan. Why not declare victory and just bring everyone home? Because I'm not sure that doing so would... Uh, I, I think there's the, the concern that things would devolve in the Middle East and that that wouldn't be good for anybody. Okay. Uh, let me switch gears and talk about health care. Yeah. The Republican Party from, I think, the moment what is popularly known as Obamacare was passed, mm -hmm. committed itself to a program of repeal and replace. Mm -hmm. When they assumed power in the executive as well as in both houses of the legislature, they had nothing to replace it with right. and still haven't. You are seeking to represent a population on the Cape that's older than most, mm -hmm. um, that I would, older than most, in, in many ways more affluent than other communities poorer. What's your prescription, to use a bad pun? I think there's a few things we need to do. First of all, relative to Obamacare, look, I, I think one of the things you see is we need to have things in place uh, to make sure that we accommodate for pre-existing conditions and things like that. Um, we, I think certainly the whole idea of being able to expand coverage to cover more people, that is a very good thing. The downside is we're seeing that uh, healthcare costs are growing exponentially. So I think the question then becomes, what can we do to address that? And I think there's a few things. Um, certainly, there needs to be more transparency in the healthcare environment and the healthcare systems that we have. Simple example, you know how much it costs to get your oil changed uh, for your car, uh, and you may make the decision on where you go to get your oil changed based on the cost. Why shouldn't the same hold true for whether you're getting a hip replacement, having your tonsils out, things like that? We just need to have more transparency. I'm convinced that if we did, we would help to drive um, costs down. You know, and I think you should be able to buy your insurance across state lines. I don't know why we don't open up. So to make it more competitive, if you will, I think those things make healthcare more competitive. And when you make healthcare more competitive, I believe you will drive the cost down. Um, certainly no one can argue with the fact that it's a very good thing uh, that we've opened up healthcare to a lot of folks that didn't have it before. Um, I'm all in favor of maintaining uh, to make sure people are able to get approved for pre-existing conditions. I don't think it's a replacement. I think like any legislation, um, you can always improve. And you look for those opportunities over time, but you cannot get those changes made if you're not willing to reach across and work across party lines to get it done. Neither party has all the answers. That's one of the things we've learned in this process. How do you deal when it comes to healthcare and maintaining coverage for pre-existing conditions with this dynamic that says it's easier to do that if you have more people in the risk pool, more healthy people in the risk pool? And if you're not forcing people to sign up and participate then it becomes harder to maintain coverage for people who are participating yeah. and have some onerous, burdensome, and costly condition that needs to be treated. The, the fact of the matter is, I think what we need to do is, um, <clears throat> we need to figure out the best way to do is to make sure that we have enough of the uh, younger folks 
um, that are out there um, as part of the risk pool because when they are, um, they help to share the cost and bring costs down for the aggregate group. There's arguments to be made what the best ways to do that. I don't have the answer, but I can tell you we need to figure it out. In terms of immigration, which is probably the uh, you know the most thankless issue that will approach mm. in politics at this moment. Cape Cod has traditionally been reliant on a degree of foreign labor. And uh, if the reporting WGBH News has done this summer, the Cape got the small business owners on the Cape were really socked yeah. by the Trump administration's policies yeah. cracking down on this. Mm-hmm. What sort of relief would you seek? So a couple things relative to immigration. Look, my, my view on immigration is um, a couple things. First of all, we do need to secure our southern border. That's good for a lot of reasons. It helps with immigration, but also helps to stem the flow, uh, the flow of uh, fentanyl, carfentanyl, things like that that are killing people indiscriminately, number one. Number two, what we need to do is we need to be smart and pragmatic about it. So for DACA recipients, I'm all for giving them a pathway to citizenship. Um, I just think it's the right way to do. I just ask that they be able to sort of pay their own way um, and obey our laws. For those that came here as adults illegally, their parents, for example, I am open to giving them a pathway to permanent residency, not citizenship, but permanent residency. Again, pay your own way and obey our laws. That's that's all I ask. When you say but, pay your own way, are you talking about no public assistance? Yeah, I mean, you know, you sort of limit public assistance, right? If you're giving it to them, you're going to have to take it away from someone else, and, and who is that someone else? Back to your question, though, Peter, and it's a great one. Tourism is a billion-dollar-a-year industry down the Cape. And what we've seen over the last couple of years is we've had people that have come, let's say, from Jamaica that service the tourism industry in hotels, restaurants, and things like that. And they've been doing it for 5, 10, 15 years. All of a sudden, in the last two years, they've sort of gotten caught up in this dragnet, and they've gotten a late start coming to the Cape, and it has put, you're absolutely right, a major hurt on the businesses, Small, a lot of them small businesses on the Cape. We're not being smart and pragmatic about it. Again, uh, we need to be able to make course corrections as we go because that is an unintended consequence that is absolutely unacceptable. And so I would fight to make sure. And by the way, these folks that have been coming here for London, if they want to do any, uh, if they had any ill will or want to do us harm, they would have done it before now. We just need to make sure we're doing everything we can. But it's wrong. I would fight. We need to look at our H1, H2B visa program. And uh, we need to make sure that the things we're doing to address immigration are not having the unintended consequence of hurting businesses, particularly, to your point, um, like ones down the Cape. And today, the answer is they are, and that's wrong. That needs to change. Your opposition, which is eminently commonsensical, would still be a minority position within the Republican Party in Washington. How, as a freshman congressperson, Mm -hmm. would you make yourself heard? Well, a couple things. People often ask, what's the first issue you're going to dig into? Immigration is one that's very important to me. And the the first thing I would do when I got to Washington, it's not really an issue at all. It's getting out and making sure I invested time to get to know each of my counterparts in Congress. To the extent they want to meet me, I would like to meet them, get to know them. Because at the end of the day, this is supposed to be about people. And you have to be able to build a rapport with people, get them to know me, know what type of person I am, where my moral compass is. And I believe that once they do that, they'd be willing to work with me and listen and conversely know that I'll listen to them as well. And I want to fight to do the right thing. 
And, you know, uh, term limits is something else I believe strongly in. I'm willing to serve one term if that means doing the right thing. And if doing the right thing means I only get to serve one term, I am perfectly fine with that. I need to be able to sleep at night. I need to be able to look my, my wife, my daughter, my granddaughter in the eyes and know that I'm doing the right thing for the people I represent. We only have a couple more minutes before they boot us out of the studio. So I got to ask you what your take has been watching the Kavanaugh confirmation hearings. I think it typifies the partisan situation we find ourselves in on Capitol Hill today. I think it helps you to understand why Congress has a 16% approval rating and is unable to get anything done. I think it is, it's just, it's very disheartening, very disappointing um, the way this is, this is being conducted. Uh, that is a broad statement about yeah. two sides. Obviously, the Democrats and Republicans. I'm not happy with either, but totally, go ahead. Yeah, well, so, so was there anyone whose performance uh, you were happy with? If you didn't like the way the vast majority of the people on the Judiciary Committee were conducting the hearing, uh, for example, what do you think of what Jeff Flake ultimately did? You know something? I think it's a good idea. I think it's uh, we need to make sure we remove any – if he's going to be a member of the Supreme Judicial Court, we cannot have cloud of uh, supposed guilt hanging over his head. So we're able to clear the air. I think that's, um, that's not a bad thing. Uh, Governor Baker, your political role model, I was going to say, I don't know if that's overstating it, but the man for whom you expressed an affinity politically, he said for a, a day or two that he didn't think there should be a vote taken until there was a fuller investigation. Then he came out on uh, the day that the hearings were occurring and said that he believed Christine Blasey Ford. Uh, do you agree with the governor on those counts? Um, I believe that this investigation is a good idea. I think it's a great thing. Um, I believe something happened to her. I believe she's been victimized, and I think that's a, that's a terrible thing. Um, I've just not heard enough to say with conviction that, that he's, the, he's the one that's behind it. it we saw our, um, our politics at its absolute worst the last week. Just before we sign off, is there anything we haven't asked you or anything you'd particularly like to say in closing? Um, look, I, I want to go down. I want to represent the people of the ninth. Um, I want to do it in a bipartisan way. I'm running against a gentleman who's been uh, pointed out as being the most partisan member of the Massachusetts delegation. He's 364th. He's ranked 364th, bottom 16% uh, in Congress on the partisan index rating. And he votes with his own party 95% of the time. I'm lucky if I agree with myself 95% of the time. We need someone that's willing to reach across the aisle if we're going to get work done again. Um, I believe in term limits. I signed a pledge to serve no more than three terms in the lower house of Congress. I will fight for term limits if elected and because I really believe in my heart we would not have a lot of the problems we have on Capitol today if we had term limits in place. And since they haven't given us the hook yet, let me try to sneak one more in there. Bombs away. Uh, when it comes to the Massachusetts delegation, you would potentially be the only Republican in it. We'll mm -hmm. see if anyone else manages to, uh, to to win as you're hoping to. Of the Democrats who are in the delegation right now, is there anyone with whom you feel you have a pre-existing good relationship or with whom you believe you could cultivate a strong relationship if, in fact, you're elected? I, I would like to believe I could cultivate a relationship with, with each and every one of them. Um, someone that I've seen work firsthand that um, I would look forward to working with right out of the gate would be a Stephen Lynch on the 8th. Um, I got to know Stephen when I was um, president and CEO of Tedeschi Food Shops and uh, when I was on the executive board for the South Shore Chamber of Commerce. He's someone that I saw... Um, for example, Mags and Stevens, okay, um, that, that Keating voted against, Steve Lynch voted for it because he knew it was the right thing to do, even though it went against party lines, okay? Um, he's, he's a man that I really believed that he does the work of his people, not just the bidding of his party or special interest group. It's also possible if you win that you would be a colleague of Ayanna Presley's yeah. who won a Democratic primary, making a 
very different kind of case than yeah. than you are making in your race against uh, Congressman Keating. Do you think you could find issues that you could make common cause with Ayanna Presley on? I certainly hope uh, we could. She strikes me as someone that cares about people, and I care about people. I have a retail background. I often say retail and politics are a lot alike. At the end of the day, they're both about people. If you care about people, you can do well in either. If you don't, you have no business being in either. Um, I believe she's someone that deeply cares about people and someone that I would um, welcome the opportunity to work with on behalf of people. Peter Tedeschi, candidate for Congress in the 9th Congressional District. Thank you for coming to WGBH and taking the time to talk with us. Thanks for your time. My pleasure. So, Peter Kadzis, any thoughts on how Peter Tedeschi pitched himself? He's a heck of a nice guy. Very, very nice guy. And of, of course, our listeners can't see him. Um, he's a tremendous salesman. That's a compliment. He looks you in the eye. He's straightforward. He's very thoughtful. I would think that on the campaign trail, he must be very effective. He's clearly a first-time candidate. I think his answers about the war in Afghanistan left a little something to be desired. But I got to tell you, I mean, it's not inconsistent with the Republican Party line. If anything, he's in his own quiet way more of a skeptic than, say, some other Republicans are. Um, I think he'd do well one-on. I think he does well campaigning. Listen, that's a small district. I mean, it's compact. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, I know the Cape pretty well, and I, I, I can picture him. I can picture him really connecting with voters down there. Um, I don't have a feel though for how people vote. You know how they read things. It is the most conservative part of the state, with the exception of Provincetown, obviously. But um, he's an interesting—he's an interesting guy. And you know, my theory. Listeners have heard me saying everything's a dress rehearsal for the next governor's race because Baker probably won't run again. Oh, interesting. Assuming he's reelected, uh, re who would be the heir to Charlie Baker? Republicanism a former businessman who made a good run for Congress. So I think we're looking at him for governor in four years. Okay, that is going to do it for this installment of The Scrum. Peter Kadzis, as always, thank you for joining me. I wouldn't miss it. Thanks also to Peter Tedeschi for making the trip to WGBH's Brighton Studios to talk with me and his namesake. And of course, thanks to you once again for listening. If you have any thoughts on what you've just heard, we would love to hear from you on Twitter, Peter is at Kadzis. I am at Riley Adam. If you haven't already subscribed to The Scrum, please do at whatever app you use to get your podcasts. We got production help for this episode from our colleagues Gary Mott and Doug Sugartz. Thanks much, guys. I'm Adam Riley. The Scrum is a production of WGBH News. 